Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 143 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Now, throughout this odd-numbered episode, we are continuing to read through the casebook of Sherlock Holmes with the adventure of the illustrious client. Up to this point, Holmes has been hired by an unknown wealthy person of high prominence in British society to prevent the marriage of one young lady who is betrothed to be married to a murderous psychopath who, by the way, meets the intellectual capacity of Holmes himself. And this man has successfully convinced this young woman through hypnosis that he is but a victim of circumstance in all of the cases he has been accused. So it is Holmes's and Watson's position and job to convince this young woman to not go through with the marriage to this rather violent man. And now, The Adventure of the Illustrious Client, Part 2, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Content Warning. The following reading contains profanity. So, there you are, Watson. You are up to date now. The fellow seems dangerous. Mighty dangerous. I disregard the blusterer, but this is the sort of man who says rather less than he means. Must you interfere? Does it really matter if he marries the girl? Considering that he undoubtedly murdered his last wife, I should say it mattered very much. Besides, the client! Well, well, we need not discuss that. When you have finished your coffee, you had best come home with me, for the blithe Shinwell will be there with his report. We found him, sure enough. A huge, coarse, red-faced, scorbutic man, with a pair of vivid black eyes which were the only external sign of the very cunning mind within. It seems that he had dived down into what was peculiarly his kingdom, and beside him on the settee was a brand which he had brought up in the shape of a slim, flame-like young woman, with a pale, intense face, youthful, and yet so worn with sin and sorrow that one read the terrible years which had left their leprous mark upon her. This is Miss Kitty Winter, said Shinwell Johnson, waving his fat hand as an introduction. What she don't know... Well, there, she'll speak for herself. Put my hand right on her, Mr. Holmes, within an hour of your message. I'm easy to find, said the young woman. Hell, London gets me every time. Same address for Porky Shinwell. We're old mates, Porky, you and I. But by gripes, there is another who ought to be down in a lower hell than we if there was any justice in the world. That is the man you are after, Mr. Holmes. Holmes smiled. I gather we have your good wishes, Miss Winter. 
If I can help to put him where he belongs, I am yours to the rattle, said our visitor with fierce energy. There was an intensity of hatred in her white set face and her blazing eyes, such as a woman seldom and man never can attain. You needn't go into my past, Mr. Holmes. That's neither here nor there. But what I am, Adelbert Gruner made me. If I could pull him down! She clutched frantically with her hands into the air. Oh, if I could only pull him into the pit where he has pushed so many. You know how the matter stands. Porky Shinwell has been telling me. He's after some other poor fool and wants to marry her this time. You want to stop it. Well, you surely know enough about this devil to prevent any decent girl in her senses wanting to be in the same perish with him. She is not in her senses. She is madly in love. She has been told all about him. She cares nothing. Told? About the murder? Yes. My lord, she must have a nerve. She puts them all down as slanders. Couldn't you lay proofs before her silly eyes? Well, can you help us do so? Ain't I proof myself? If I stood before her and told her how he used me, would you do this? Would I? Would I not? Well, it might be worth trying, but he has told her most of his sins and had pardon from her. And I understand she will not reopen the question. Or lay he didn't tell her all, said Miss Winter. I caught a glimpse of one or two murders beside the one that made such a fuss. He would speak of someone in his velvet way, and then look at me with a steady eye and say, He died within a month. It wasn't hot air either, but I took little notice, you see. I loved him myself at that time. Whatever he did went with me. Same as with this poor fool. There was just one thing that shook me. Yes, by gripes. If it had not been for his poisonous lying tongue that explains and soothes, I'd have left him that very night. It's a book he has. A brown leather book with a lock and his arms in gold outside. I think he was a bit drunk that night, or he would not have shown it to me. What was it then? I tell you, Mr. Holmes, this man collects women and takes pride in collection, as some men collect moths or butterflies. He had it all in that book. Snapshot, photographs, names, details, everything about them. It was a beastly book. A book no man, even if he had come from the gutter, could have put together. But it was Adelbert Gruner's book all the same. Souls I've ruined. He could have put that on the outside if he had been so minded. However, that's neither here nor there. For the book would not serve you, 
And if it would, you can't get it. Where is it? How can I tell you where it is now? It's more than a year since I left him. I know where he kept it then. He's a precise, tidy cat of a man in many of his ways. So maybe it is still in the pigeonhole of the old bureau in the inner study. Do you know his house? I've been in the study, said Holmes. Have you, though? You haven't been slow on the job if you only started this morning. Maybe dear Adelbert has met his match this time. The outer study is the one with the Chinese crockery in it. Big glass cupboard between the windows. Then, behind his desk, is the door that leads to the inner study. A small room where he keeps papers and things. Is he not afraid of burglars? Adelbert is no coward. His worst enemy couldn't say that of him. He can look after himself. There's a burglar alarm at night. Besides, what is there for a burglar? Unless they got away with all this fancy crockery. No good, said Shinwell Johnson, with the decided voice of the expert. No fence wants stuff of that sort you can neither melt nor sell. Quite so, said Holmes. Well now, Miss Winter, if you would call here tomorrow evening at five, I would consider in the meanwhile whether your suggestion of seeing this lady personally may not be arranged. I am exceedingly obliged to you for your cooperation. I need not say that my clients will consider liberally. None of that, Mr. Holmes, cried the young woman. I'm not out for money. Let me see this man in the mud, and I've got all worked for in the mud with my foot on his cursed face. That's my price. I'm with you tomorrow or any other day, so long as you are on his track. Porky here can tell you always where to find me. I did not see Holmes again until the following evening when we dined once more at our Strand restaurant. He shrugged his shoulders when I'd asked him what luck he had in his interview. Then he told the story, which I would repeat in this way. His hard, dry statement needs some little editing to soften it into the terms of real life. There was no difficulty at all about the appointment, said Holmes, for the girl glories in showing abject filial obedience in all secondary things in an attempt to atone for her flagrant breach of it in her engagement. The general phoned that all was ready, and the fiery Miss W turned up according to schedule, so that at half past five, a cab deposited us outside 104 Berkeley Square, where the old soldier resides. One of those awful grey London castles, which would make a church seem frivolous. A footman showed us into a great yellow-curtained drawing room, and there was the lady, waiting us, demure, pale, self-contained, as inflexible and remote as a snow image on a mountain. I don't know how to make her clear to you, Watson. Perhaps you may meet her before we are through, and you can use your own gift of words. She is beautiful, but with the ethereal, otherworld beauty of some fanatic whose thoughts are set on high. 
I've seen such faces in the pictures of old masters of the Middle Ages. How a beast man could have laid his vile paws upon such a being of the beyond, I cannot imagine. You may have noticed how extremes call to each other. The spiritual to the animal. The caveman to the angel. You never saw a worse case than this. She knew what we had come for, of course. That villain had lost no time in poisoning her mind against us. Miss Winter's advent rather amazed her, I think. But she waved us into our respective chairs like a reverend abbess, receiving two rather leprous mendicants. If your head is inclined to swell, my dear Watson, take course of Miss Violet de Merville. Well, sir, said she in a voice like the wind from an iceberg, your name is familiar to me. You have called, as I understand, to malign my fiancé, Baron Gruner. It is only by my father's request that I see you at all, and I warn you in advance that anything you say could not possibly have the slightest effect upon my mind. I was sorry for her, Watson. I thought of her for the moment as I would have thought of a daughter of my own. I'm not often eloquent. I use my head, not my heart. But I really did plead with her with all the warmth of words that I could find in my nature. I pictured to her the awful position of the woman who only wakes to a man's character after she is his wife. A woman who has to submit to being caressed by bloody hands and lecherous lips. I spared her nothing. The shame, the fear, the agony, the hopelessness of it all. All my hot words could not bring one tinge of color to those ivory cheeks or one gleam of emotion to those abstracted eyes. I thought of what the rascal had said about a post-hypnotic influence. One could really believe that she was living above the earth in some ecstatic dream. Yet there was nothing indefinite in her replies. I have listened to you with patience, Mr. Holmes, said she. The effect upon my mind is exactly as predicted. I'm aware that Adelbert, that my fiancé, has had a stormy life in which he has incurred bitter hatreds and most unjust aspersions. You're only the last of a series who have brought their slanders before me. Possibly you mean well, though I learn you are a paid agent who would have been equally willing to act for the Baron as against him. But, in any case, I wish you to understand once for all that I love him and that he loves me, and that the opinion of all the world is no more to me than the twitter of those birds outside the window. If his noble nature has ever for an instant fallen, it may be that I have been specially sent to raise it to its true and lofty level. I am not clear, here she turned her eyes upon my companion, who this young lady may be. I was about to answer when the girl broke in like a whirlwind. If ever you saw flame and ice face to face, it was those two women. I'll tell you who I am, she cried, springing out of her chair, her mouth 
all twisted with passion. I am his last mistress. I am one of a hundred that he has tempted and used and ruined and thrown into the refuse heap as he will you also. Your refuse heap is more likely to be a grave, and maybe that is the best. I tell you, you foolish woman, if you marry this man, he'll be the death of you. It may be a broken heart, or it may be a broken neck, but he'll have you one way or the other. It's not out of love for you I'm speaking. I don't care a tinker's curse whether you live or die. It is out of hate for him, and to spite him, and to get back at him for what he did to me. But it's all the same, and you needn't look at me like that, my fine lady, for you may be lower than I am before you are through with it. I should prefer not to discuss such matters, said Mr. Merville coldly. Let me say once for all that I am aware of three passages in my fiancé's life in which he became entangled with designing women, and that I am assured of his hearty repentance for any evil that he may have done. Three passages? screamed my companion. You fool! You unutterable fool! Mr. Holmes, I beg that you will bring this interview to an end, said the icy voice. I have obeyed my father's wish in seeing you, but I am not compelled to listen to the ravings of this person. With an oath, Miss Winter darted forward, and if I had not caught her wrist, she would have clutched this maddening woman by the hair. I dragged her towards the door, and was lucky to get her back into the cab without a public scene, for she was beside herself with rage. In a cold way, I felt pretty furious myself, Watson, for there was something indescribably annoying in the calm aloofness and supreme self-complacence of the woman whom we were trying to save. So now, once again, you know exactly how we stand, and it is clear that I must plan some fresh opening move, for this gambit won't work. I'll keep in touch with you, Watson, for it is more likely that you will have your part to play, though it is just possible that the next move may lie with them rather than with us. And it did. Their blow fell, or his blow, rather, for never could I believe that the lady was privy to it. I think I could show you the very paving stone upon which I stood when my eyes fell upon the placard and a pang of horror passed through my very soul. It was between the Grand Hotel and Charing Cross Station, where a one-legged news vendor displayed his evening papers. The date was just two days after the last conversation. There, black upon yellow, was the terrible news sheet Murderous attack upon Sherlock Holmes. I think I stood stunned for some moments. Then, I have a confused recollection of snatching a paper of the remonstrance of the man whom I had not paid, and finally, of standing in the doorway of a chemist's shop while I turned up the fateful paragraph. 
This was how it ran. We learn with regret that Mr. Sherlock Holmes, the well-known private detective, was the victim this morning of a murderous assault, which left him in a precarious position. There are no exact details to hand, but the event seems to have occurred about 12 o'clock in Regent Street, outside the Café Royale. The attack was made by two men armed with sticks, and Mr. Holmes was beaten about the head and body, receiving injuries which the doctors describe as most serious. He was carried to Charing Cross Hospital, and afterwards insisted upon being taken to his rooms in Baker Street. The miscreants who attacked him appear to have been respectably dressed men who escaped from the bystanders by passing through the Café Royale and out into Glasshouse Street behind it. No doubt they belonged to that criminal fraternity which so has often had occasion to bewail the activity and ingenuity of the injured man. I need not say that my eyes had hardly glanced over the paragraph before I had sprung into a hansom and was on my way to Baker Street. I found Sir Leslie Oakshot, the famous surgeon in the hall, and his brougham waiting at the curb. No immediate danger, was his report. Two lacerated scalp wounds and some considerable bruises. Several stitches have been necessary. Morphine has been injected and quiet is essential. But an interview of a few minutes would not be absolutely forbidden. With this permission, I stole into the darkened room. The sufferer was wide awake, and I heard my name in a hoarse whisper. The blind was three quarters down, but one ray of sunlight slanted through and struck the bandaged head of the injured man. A crimson patch had soaked through the white linen compress. I sat beside him and bent my head. All right, Watson, don't look so scared. He muttered in a very weak voice. It's not as bad as it seems. Thank God for that. I, a bit of a single stick expert, as you know, I, I took most of them on, my guard. It was the second man that was too much for me. What can I do, Holmes? Of course it was that damned fellow who set them on. I'll go and thrash the hide off him if you give the word. Good old Watson. No, we can do nothing there unless the police lay their hands on the men. But their getaway had been well prepared. We may be sure of that. Wait a little. I, I have my plans. The first thing is to exaggerate my injuries. They'll come to you for news. Put it on thick, Watson. Lucky if I live the week out. Concussion, delirium, what you like. You can't overdo it. But Sir Leslie Oakshot? Oh, he's all right. He shall see the worst side of me. I'll look after that. Anything else? Yes. Tell Shinwell Johnson to get that girl out of the way. Those beauties will be after her now. They know, of course, that she was with me in the case. If they dared to do me in, it is not likely they will neglect her. That is urgent. Do it tonight. I'll go now. Anything more? Put my pipe on the table and the tobacco slipper, right? Come in each morning and we will plan our campaign. 
I arranged with Johnson that evening to take Miss Winter to a quiet suburb to see that she lay low until the danger was past. For six days, the public were under the impression that Holmes was at the door of death. The bulletins were very grave, and there were sinister paragraphs in the papers. My continual visits assured me that it was not so bad as that. His wiry constitution and his determined will were working wonders. He was recovering fast, and I had suspicions at times that he was really finding himself faster than he pretended, even to me. There was a curious secretive streak in the man. <laughs> there was a curious secretive streak in the man which led to many dramatic effects, but left even his closest friends guessing as to what his exact plans might be. He pushed to an extreme the axiom that the only safe plotter was he who plotted alone. I was nearer to him than anyone else, and yet I was always conscious of the gap between. On the seventh day, the stitches were taken out, in spite of which, there was a report of erysipelas in the evening papers. The same evening papers had an announcement which I was bound, sick or well, to carry to my friend. It was simply that among the passengers on the Connaught boat, Ruritania, starting from Liverpool on Friday, was the Baron Adelbert Gruner, who had some important financial business to settle in the States before his impending wedding to Miss Violet de Merville only daughter of etc., etc. Holmes listened to the news with a cold, concentrated look upon his pale face, which told me that it had hit him hard. Friday? he cried. Only three clear days. I believe the rascal wants to put himself out of danger's way. But he won't, Watson. By the Lord Harry, he won't. Now, Watson, I want you to do something for me. I am here to be used, Holmes. Well then, spend the next 24 hours in an intensive study of Chinese pottery. He gave no explanations, and I asked for none. By long experience, I had learned the wisdom of obedience. But when I left this room, I walked down Baker Street, revolving in my head how on earth I was to carry out so strange an order. Finally, I drove to the London Library in St. James Square, put the matter to my friend Lomax, the sub-librarian, and departed to my rooms with a goodly volume under my arm. It is said that the barrister who crams up a case with such care that he can examine an expert witness upon the Monday has forgotten all his forced knowledge before the Saturday. Certainly, I should not like now to pose as an authority upon ceramics, and yet, all that evening and all that night, with a short interval for rest, and all next morning, I was sucking in knowledge and committing names to memory. There I learned of the hallmarks of the great artist decorators, of the mystery of cyclical dates, the marks of the Hung Wu and the beauties of the Yong Lo, the writings of Tang Ying and the glories of the primitive period of the Song and the Yon. I was charged with all this information when I called upon Holden's next evening. He was out of bed now, though you would not have guessed it from the published reports, and he sat with his much bandaged head resting upon his hand in the depth of his favorite armchair. Why, Holmes, 
I said. If one believed the papers, you are dying. That, said he, is the very impression which I intended to convey. And now, Watson, have you learned your lessons? At least I tried to. Good. You could keep up an intelligent conversation on the subject? I believe I could. Then, hand me that little box from the mantelpiece. He opened the lid and took out a small object, most carefully wrapped in some fine eastern silk. This he unfolded and disclosed a delicate little saucer of the most beautiful deep blue color. It needs careful handling, Watson. This is the real eggshell pottery of the Ming Dynasty. No finer piece ever passed through Christie's. A complete set of this would be worth a king's ransom. In fact, it is doubtful if there is a complete set outside the Imperial Palace of Peking. The sight of this would drive a real connoisseur wild. What am I to do with it? Holmes handed me a card upon which was printed. Dr. Hill Barton, 369 Half Moon Street. That is your name for the evening, Watson. You will call upon Baron Gruner. I know something of his habits, and at half past eight, he would probably be disengaged. A note will tell him in advance that you are about to call, and you will say that you are bringing him a specimen of an absolutely unique set of Ming China. You may as well be a medical man, since that is your part which you came to play without duplicity. You are a collector. This set has come your way. You have heard of Baron's interests in the subject, and you are not averse to selling at a price. What price? Well asked, Watson. You would certainly fall down badly if you did not know the value of your own wares. This saucer was got for me by Sir James, and comes, as I understand, from the collection of his clients. You will not exaggerate if you say that it could hardly be matched in the world. I could perhaps suggest that the set should be valued by an expert. Excellent, Watson! You scintillate today. Suggest uh, Christie or Sotheby. Your delicacy prevents your putting a price for yourself. But if he won't see me? Oh yes, he will see you. He has the collection mania in his most acute form, and especially on this subject, on which he is an acknowledged authority. Sit down, Watson, and I will dictate the letter. No answer needed. You will merely say that you are coming, and why. It was an admirable document, short, courteous, and stimulating to the curiosity of the connoisseur. A district messenger was duly dispatched with it. On the same evening, with the precious saucer in my hand and the card of Dr. Hill Barton in my pocket, I set off on my own adventure. End of part two of The Adventure of the Illustrious Client by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Now I was planning to conclude this case for you today. However, I realized at this point in the juncture that I was only indeed two-thirds through this case and for the sake of making this an incredibly long episode I have elected to split this into a third part that you can listen to in two weeks time 
But I digress. The plot, as they say, has indeed thickened. A secondary mistress for one of Baron Gruner's evidently hundreds of mistresses, Miss Kitty Winter enters the picture and has come out of her experiences with the Baron with such bitter hatred and fiery passion. I loved the way that Watson described Holmes's encounter with uh, Violet de Merville and Kitty Winter. He, he composed it with such poetry of thought. He's like, imagine you saw fire and ice hit each other unscathed, and that is what I witnessed before my eyes when Miss Winter and Mr. Merville went at it, as it were. Kitty was furious that Violet was unfazed by any ill reports concerning her fiancé, the Baron. And Kitty was like, you can't be serious right now. This man has forever scarred my life for all existence. And you cannot see through your scaled eyes what I have witnessed and the post-traumatic stress that it has caused me. And here you are sitting in your high castle. And like, truly, Violet like showed absolutely no effects from this outburst. Like, it was like Kitty had just asked her like what she thought of the weather. And Violet was bored by that subject matter of, of senseless talk. You know? She's like, can you just get this undignified woman out of my sight? Like, I, I'm not going to endure this. This is stupid. You know, type of thing. And, and Holmes, the master of self-discipline in emotional composure, the, the Spock of his era and time, admits that he too also felt an equal amount of furious bafflement over Violet's response internally within his own soul. And so, um, yeah, I definitely would say that this also tremendously infuriated me. But let me just move forward here to Holmes's task that he has put before Watson after he has been attacked um, by some of the Baron's henchmen, where he asks Watson, Hey, um, can you do me a solid and steady up all you can on Chinese pottery? Yeah, you know, do it in a night's time. You know, it's not going to be a big deal. Do you imagine how many extensive volumes there are at Watson's disposal at the London Library alone? I mean, I would be absolutely overwhelmed by that task in the internet age. But fortunately for them, which very interesting, might I add, these people were not inundated with information. In fact, they were hungering and thirsting for more information at that time. And so, a simple one-volume set on Chinese pottery was all that Watson had to read. And so, um, you know, he's just like, yeah, just 
slammed it in one night. You know, probably brought him back to his college days when he had to study up for medical, you know, for all the medical books and memorizing, you know, all this medical information. It probably was like nothing to, to Watson. He was probably just like, yeah, okay. Yeah, no problem, man. And just was like, ooh, this is fascinating. Oh, this is cool. And, you know, he's like committing to memory all these like names and dynasties and all those sorts of things. I mean, the, the level of information recall that people probably had at this time was probably tremendous because they didn't have a lot of information to work with to begin with. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I wish I could live in a time that I didn't know as much information as I do now, which seems kind of strange to say, but it's one of those things where once you've lived in this century, you don't want to remember half the useless information that is unreliable and um, quite tainted and encoded with bias from random people off the street who are not experts in by any stretch of the imagination. But I digress. Thank you all so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Next week, we will be continuing to read through F. Scott Fitzgerald's The Great Gatsby with the penultimate chapter, chapter 7. So please tune in then. But as they say on showbiz, for now, that's all he wrote. And remember, when in doubt, pronounce it secretive instead of secretive. Thank you.